tonight, I want to, I want to, anybody remember your, your job when you were in college or high school? Somebody just shout out some of the jobs that you did. Do what? Second groceries. Checking groceries. Man, we can open up a store. Car hop. A what? You dip minnows for a summer job. Man, how could you go wrong with that one, right? If you could count, you could, you could dip minnows, right? Awesome. I remember one. I, I did opportunity when I was in high school and college to do several jobs. My first job was with my grandmother. She owned a bakery in Texas. Who, who bakes in Texas? It's so stinking hot. And uh, so we, uh, I, she hired me for $2 an hour to come in and to basically wash dishes and clean up. And we didn't have air conditioning. And the sink was right next to the oven, which never got turned off. What was I thinking? Listen, I was 15 and it was $2 an hour. That's what I was thinking. I mean, I worked landscape and pest control. got to crawl under houses, dig holes for a living. That was kind of fun one summer. Um, when I was in college, one of the things I did was work at our... We had a granary nearby, and I worked during wheat and maize, or we call it milo season, and those were always fun. But one summer, I, I decided for some reason to work uh, at an aluminum extrusion plant. Now, if you want to know what that is, uh, when you walk out our doors and stuff, or you look at um, your office windows and door frames, those aluminum frames that sometimes are kind of a dark brown or maybe they're silver, we made those. Which was fine, because as long as they were building, we had work, right? And so I began to understand processes, even at a, at a young age, watching how a, um, a piece of door frame or door a window came into process. We would always start with a, a log of aluminum. Now, you would think aluminum would be light, right? It's not when it's a log, um, I got to drive fork, eventually got to drive a forklift, and so I, which was kind of crazy, they let me drive a forklift. That was so cool. What were they thinking? And, uh, but we'd have to take these logs, and we would take them over to the extrusion area. And the extrusion area was where we had um, just a huge furnace. And we'd put those logs in there, and the operator would push them through. And out on the other side was a die that, in the engineering department, had created based on specifications of a customer. A certain door frame size or a window size or something like that. And so he would put that die in there and then they would press that aluminum log through that heat and get it hot. We didn't want it hot enough to be running. Liquid aluminum does not make good door frames. And so we would press that through and as it got to a certain length, they would cut it off and go through and cut it off and go through and cut it off. Then they would take those, those sticks of frames and, and, whether, and most of them were all straight. You know, we didn't bend them till later. And then they would take and they would uh, go and, and dip them in, in anodizing liquid. And that was what gave it that dark brown or kind of a greenish tone. It was silver, clear, whatever. And then they would come over to where I worked, and that was shipping and packaging and shipping. We would package it all up, load it on a truck, and then we would ship it out to the customer. Or we had a plant that put them all together uh, right across the street. We would haul them over there. And I, got, I began to understand processes. And when I was in the corporate world later on, uh, that was part of my job, is I had to develop processes to accomplish the goal, to create a product that we were after, and how do we do that, and what does it look like, and who gets involved, and we had to decide all of those things, and so I was 
I love doing that. Well, that, that, that experience at the aluminum plant really helped me understand a story that one of my mentors shared when I was transitioning from the corporate world into ministry. Me and several other interns, he would often take us and, and just share with us and pour into us. And one of the stories he told was about an entrepreneur who loved to take risks. He loved to make dreams come true, especially his own dreams. Uh, and so one day he had... Um, a, a vision for a video voice box. Now, remember, this was early 90s before cell phones were popular. I know, some of you cannot imagine that day ever existing. But yeah, not everybody had a cell phone. Remember, remember y'all had, how do you remember the brick phone? Yeah, I had a friend of mine that had someone, one on his pants. I thought they were going to fall down any minute. So you need some suspenders. Or the bag phone. My mom had one of those. Y'all remember the bag phone you plugged into your car and you could take? And we thought that was cool. And eventually we got, you know, there was not a phone for a long time, guys, invented that you could actually put in your pocket. Y'all remember the, remember the clamshell one that had the two parts that opened and all that stuff? Rick, you remember those? Yeah, Southwestern Bell, where we lived, had those. And, but he had a vision for where the, where the technology was going. And what he wanted to create in the early 90s was much like what we have in our, in our, in our smartphones and in our tablets, our iPads, and other things where we could use Skype or FaceTime and literally see and talk with somebody somewhere else. It'd be great for business because we could do conference calls that way. We could do other, we could communicate with one another, with teams that way. And so he had a vision for taking, getting ahead of the technology. And so... He went to his investors, raised $60 million, which back in the early 90s was a lot of money. And uh, he found a, sh a project manager and said, can you build me one of these, a video voice box? And the guy said, absolutely. Here's the money, go build it. So he gave him the authority, he gave him the, re the resources, and he left to you know, invest in some other project. And so as the project manager began evaluating, looking at these plans to make a video voice box, he realized he needed parts, he needed some engineers, he needed some, some shift supervisors, and he began hiring people. He began getting parts, and he realized he was being overwhelmed. And, and so he began uh, warehousing and developing incredible warehouse. And, and he began studying warehousing. He would go to seminars and conferences. He would go to Europe and Asia and study how they did warehousing. And in about three years' time, he had about 200 employees, 10,000 square foot of warehouse space, and he had the most effective and efficient warehouse in the world. And they were excited. And so they decided to throw a company party. And so they invited, you know, uh, forklift drivers like myself, and they invited... Uh, you know, shift supervisors and, you know, the people in the finance department, bring your families. We're going to have hot dogs and hamburgers and chips and games and, you know, we're going to share stories. And so we're going to, we're just going to get a band over here and we're going to have a great time. And so they did. And they're having this party. And in the middle of this party, this helicopter begins hovering over the crowd. People are wondering, what's going on? Well, eventually it lands, and out of the helicopter comes the entrepreneur, and he's excited. He goes, I heard about the celebration, and so I'm ready to see. Show me the first video voice box. And they looked around and went, what video voice box? That's not why we're celebrating. We, we're celebrating because we have, we have the most effective and efficient warehouse system in the world. And he looked a little dismayed and a little frustrated, and he said, uh, where's the project manager? Project manager sitting at the head table where all the speakers were going to be, and, and he steps down and comes down to where the entrepreneur is, and he says, 
He says, where's my video voice box? And he said, well, first we created this great warehouse. And he looked at him and said, son, I didn't hire you to create a warehouse. I hired you to make a product. And so on the spot, he fired it. He closed the company down. He went and found another company. And six months later, he had a video voice box. Now, what is that story about? That story is about making a product. You see, that, that project manager had been hired by the entrepreneur to make a product, a video voice box. And, our, and our, my pastor, my, my, my mentor, shared this story with us. He said, because, gentlemen, as, as leaders in the church, as pastors, as future pastors, your job is not to, to build a warehouse for Christians. Your job is to make a product called the Disciple. And he said, too many churches in, in, in the United States have become great warehouses for, 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 uh, for Christians. We have started collecting them. We got them in. We even hired people to help them, you know, manage them and oversee them and, and whatever they want to do. And, and we have great warehouses. We have structural, just gorgeous structures. And yet, we're not making disciples. He said, gentlemen, you're called to make a product. You're called to make a disciple. And he led us through Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You know it is the great commandment. And at the very beginning, Jesus told him, he said, listen, in verse 18, it says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. And in that authority, I'm commanding you to go. And as you go, the one command in that entire verse is to make disciples of all the nations. Go. Make disciples. Make a product called a disciple. So how do we know if we're making the right product? Obviously, this company didn't even have an idea what they were supposed to make. And I believe many in our churches don't get that. They have, they, we have forgotten as leaders or as longtime members to communicate to new employees, to new members, hey, we're here to make a disciple, not to sit and soak, not to be spiritual sponges, not to warehouse Christians. The problem is that sometimes we don't even know what it is to tell them we're making. We don't know how to define it. We don't know what it looks like. Are we even making the right product? Years ago, I had a boss in the corporate world. He said, Mike, do you know the difference between uh, efficiency and effectiveness? And I said, no, sir. He said, efficiency is doing a thing right. Effectiveness is doing the right thing. He said, Mike, never forget, we can always be really good at doing the wrong thing. And a lot of churches are that way today. They're really good at doing the wrong thing. They're focusing on the wrong things. And sometimes it's because making a product is hard. It's a process. It's not a stamp, something we can just stamp out. You see, being effective, church, means we're making disciples. Over time, hopefully we'll become efficient at making disciples. We'll be doing the right thing, and over time, we'll be doing it right. But many churches today focus on the wrong thing and doing that really right, really well. Now, one thing I know about watching the process of that log of aluminum becoming a door frame or a window frame is it doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't like we woke up one day and all these frames were built and anodized, and we're like, whoa, that was pretty cool. 
It doesn't happen that way. It takes intentionality. It takes a guy, who somebody telling me, Mike, I need some more aluminum logs. It takes some engineers to, to develop the die who understands the, what the client's looking for. It takes me going out and getting the logs and bringing them in because it takes a forklift. You can't just pick them up and take them. It takes, it takes uh, resources to burn the furnace, to anodize. It takes people to make sure all that happens. It takes a lot to do that. It doesn't happen accidentally. Making disciples is the same way. We don't accidentally make a disciple. We don't accidentally, church, wake up one day and we have a church full of disciples and go, whoa, how'd that happen? We have to be intentional about making disciples. If I were to ask each one of you to write on a piece of paper, how would you define a disciple? You know what I would get? That many different answers. Matter of fact, we're Baptists. So if I were to ask 10, 10 of you to define it, we'd have 12 definitions. <laughs> Come on now, y'all know I'm right. Wouldn't we? And then we start arguing over wording and language and all this stuff. And what does that mean? And it partly because as a church, as Wind Baptist Church, I don't know that we've ever stopped and said, what does it look like when we're making this? How do we define that here at Wind Baptist Church? How do we do that? How do we know when we're when we're making the product? How do we know when we're accomplishing the goal? What does it look like? Tonight I want to look at several scriptures that will hopefully give us some idea of what that looks like. Uh, the first one I want you to look at is Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. Now this is at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He's kind of wrapping up everything. And, and he's, been, he's been really teaching a lot on a lot of different aspects of the lives of the people there in, in that area. And he is, he's wrapping it up. And he comes to verse 24 and he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now listen, I've been teaching Joshua this song over the last couple of months. So as I read, if you want to do the hand motions, that's cool. Because as I read it, I almost can't not do it. So if I do it, y'all bear with me, okay? He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it was built on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Or as Joshua would say, and it went splat. But Jesus said a wise man, after he did these teachings on the Beatitudes, on relationships, on the relationships with others and with God, on our hearts, all these things, came to him and said, a wise man is one who hears these words of mine and does them. John records several times that Jesus helped us define discipleship. I'm, you can just write these down. They're one verse. I'm just going to read them. And so John 12, 26, he says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My father will, be, will honor the ones who serves me. And John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John 15, 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Further on, in John 15, 14, He says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
Now, there's two keys to these, all of these passages. One is that it is Jesus defining the relationship, the disciple relationship, every time. It's not Paul, it's not Peter, it's not James, it's not John, it's not any of the, any, in, any of the apostles, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It is Jesus. And so Jesus defines this relationship, this what a disciple looks like. These are his words. It is his desire. It can be no other way. Matter of fact, if we use any other definition, there's no way we can be, call ourselves a Christ follower. If we do it any other way than the way Jesus defines it here, then there's no way then we can become a disciple of Jesus. So Jesus defines it. That's one of the key. The second key is the thread, the theme that runs through every one of these. That's obedience. The theme is obedience. Each of these passages speaks to obeying Jesus, keeping my commands, following me, serving me. Hear these words of mine and puts them into practice. He does them. He applies them to his life. See, here's what I know. We can't follow Christ and live in disobedience. You see, you see how that's contradictory? You see how that, that just doesn't work? And so the reasonable assumption then is that if I'm not following Christ, if I'm not living in obedience, I'm not following Jesus. If I'm doing my own thing, I'm not doing Jesus' thing. And if I'm not doing Jesus' thing, I'm not following him. And I'm not becoming the product called the disciple. See, keeping his commands requires obedience to him. Now, let me just say this. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus or the Father define discipleship by knowledge. Knowing more about Jesus. Knowing more about Scripture. Knowing more about God. Nowhere does it say, if you know more about me, you will be my disciple. It always says... If you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, you will live in obedience. I remember, I've told this story to a few of you, but I remember when I was in seminary and I had a professor once who shared when uh, he was working on his Ph.D. at Southwestern um, that when you do your Ph.D., I didn't know this until later, that you actually have to take classes outside of your school just to get some different perspectives. And they had a guy that was taking the book of Psalms with them at a Ph.D. level which means you've got to know some Hebrew and stuff and be able to do that. And what they found out in getting to know this guy was that he knew the Psalms. He had memorized the Psalms in Hebrew. Would that be cool or what? And so they began challenging him, testing him, not to trip him up, but just to see. And so they would call out a Psalm, and he began reciting it in Hebrew, one after another after another. What they found out, though, as they began to talk with him and his relationship with the Lord is that he was an atheist. He knew what there was to know about God from, from David and from Asaph and others who wrote the Psalms. Deep, inside relationship kind of stuff. He knew the nuances of the Hebrew language, and yet he didn't know Jesus. So just because you know the Bible does not mean you're a disciple. When you live in obedience to him, that's when you began the process. Now, the concept of discipleship in Jesus' day was nothing new. Matter of fact, it was something that, that really, to be honest, most men hoped for. It was more of a privilege. 
Matter of fact, children would be raised either by the father or they would go to synagogue on occasion if there was a rabbi there to teach. And when they reached a certain age, the, the, the young girls would go back home to mom and learn how to manage the house and to cook and, and all those things, how to be a great mom and a great wife. And they weren't being culturally bought. That's just what they did. That's what they knew. The young men, those who did not show a propensity or depth to the scriptures, would simply go back to be in the family business. That could have been fishermen. That could have been uh, working with your hands. It could have been a farmer. It could have been a shepherd. Whatever that was. But those who showed some, some insight and, and grasped the scriptures uh, and had a, had a particular perspective on them, the rabbi would come to them and say, Come, follow me. Come, and follow me. Come and be my disciple. Now, Here's what the disciple had to choose. Would I choose to enter into that relationship? Because if it did, it meant a relationship of obedience. They would literally follow their teacher everywhere. There would be times, like in our Bible study classes, where there would be formal teaching, and they would sit around, and there weren't many. There may be three or four, maybe a few more, that he would pour into them and about the Scriptures and challenge them and test them about the Scriptures. At other times, he would, they would follow him through the marketplace. And how did he handle a transaction? How did he handle money? How did he handle relationships like his relationship with his wife or, or with women in general or with children? How did he do that? What was he doing that I needed to know about? How did he handle the scriptures? What did I need to know? And no matter what the rabbi did, the disciples wanted to be there to hear, to observe to watch, and to learn. Now, imagine, allow this new meaning of a disciple, what this, this concept of a Jewish disciple, to represent how Jesus invites us into that really cool relationship called a discipleship relationship. Matter of fact, they had a saying that when this young man would go into, because he would leave his family and go and literally would live with the rabbi. And, and when he'd go, they would say, may the dust of your rabbi fall upon you. And what that means is wherever the rabbi went, that, that student was right behind him. Whatever he did, he would begin to do. He would, he would live so closely with, with that teacher, that rabbi, that whatever he did began to influence his thinking and his attitudes and, and how he handled certain situations that he would begin reflecting. It would be kind of rubbing off. But you live in, in such close obedience to him. Imagine if that was our definition. What if we just became dusty old disciples? Not the kind you got to blow the dust off because we've been sitting around in a warehouse too long but the kind that was influenced by Jesus on a regular basis, on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, so that the dust from Jesus' feet would cover us, so that what he said and did and believed affected what we say and what we do and what we believe. I think that's a beautiful picture of what this looks like. So how do we get there? How do we get to this place where we're, we're great, dusty old disciples? Well, look with me to, to Matthew 4.19. Matthew uh, gives us a picture of what the finished product kind of looks like. Matthew 4.19. In the NIV, it says, come, follow me, 
and I will make you fishers of men. And he's, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee one day, and he sees Peter and Andrew, and that's what they were doing. They were fishermen. They didn't make the cut with their local rabbi. Man, I love Peter. I think Peter was, was, was the biggest redneck in the Bible. I think if he was alive today, he'd have a bass boat and a four-wheel drive pickup. I think he'd have an ain't scared sticker on the back or something. You know, y'all know what I mean? Yeah. He'd have a gimme cap from the feed store. Probably had it for about four or five years. Sweat on the brow before he's been out in the boat fishing. Oh, yeah. He'd have his pants tucked in his boots. He'd definitely have some rubber boots tucked between his bed and his cab. That's when, that's when you know your official redneck right there. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But Peter and Andrew were just doing their job, and they heard the words from Jesus, Come, follow me. They knew what those words meant. They maybe had friends who had heard those words in that personal invitation. They, maybe they even had family members that heard those words, and they didn't get to hear those words, so they went back and learned fishing from the family. And that's what they were doing, doing the family business. When Jesus said, Come, Peter, come. Andrew, follow me. I believe that's Jesus' personal invitation to every one of us in this room to enter into the discipleship process. Jesus is looking at us. Looking at you, Tanner. Say, Tanner, come, follow me. Dustin, come, follow me. Will, come, follow me. Mary, come, follow me. Every one of us get that personal invitation to follow Jesus in the discipleship process. Now, there's three parts to this passage, and I want to cover those three parts, and then, um, and then we'll move from there, and we'll move quickly now. When he says, come, follow me, what Jesus is talking about is that you and I enter, in, engage him in a personal relationship, and then we choose to follow him. Consciously, every day I'm getting up and saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Where do you want me to go? I'm going to follow you. I'm going to live in obedience today. Christ leads, I follow. Christ commands, I obey. To be his disciple, we have to accept who Jesus is. He's the leader. I'm the follower. We have to accept that relationship. It can be no other way or else we will never be, be a disciple of Jesus. We begin the process of becoming a disciple when we understand that we are positioned behind him and that Jesus is not only Savior of our, of our destiny, our future, but he is Lord of our life while we're on this earth. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, that, he was raised, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, but it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith in Jesus and call him Lord. You put him in charge. We don't use that word. Beth, I know when Dustin comes home, you're like, Lord Dustin. <laughs> okay, maybe you don't say it that deep. I get it. Maybe it's more like, Lord Dustin. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah, we don't use that word a lot in our vocabulary these days, do we? Unless we're talking, you know, in, in context of Scripture. That's where we read it most. Because that's not part of our... What it really means is, is, Master, you're the boss. And when the boss says it, I do it. When I ask children this question about who the Lord is and what the boss, when the boss says it, what do you do? They don't think twice about it. They answer it. You do it. When the boss says it, you do it. Adults start thinking, is this something I want to do? Can I leverage my way out of it? Who can I else can I get to do this? We start seeing who we can delegate it to. 
That's not the relationship Paul was talking about in Romans. It really means submitting my life to him and I'm following him in obedience no matter what he calls me to do. You see, Jesus cannot be Savior without being Lord. You can't have one without the other. He's got to be both or he's nothing at all. Does that make sense? There, I, had to be, I used to say, well, we have fire insurance. The more I think about it, there is no such thing as fire insurance. Either he is Savior and Lord or he's nothing. Because you have not been changed. Your life has not been changed to such an extent that you want to follow him. You want to be in that relationship. You want to follow That's a privilege. That's a right. Man, God, has, Jesus has called me to enter into this relationship. And I can't do anything but do that. If you can't do that today, we might want to talk about salvation. You know, when I was at the aluminum plant, that aluminum log was the raw material that we started with. That started the whole process. Without it, we couldn't make aluminum. We couldn't, we couldn't press out aluminum forms. You know what? You and I are the raw material that, that Jesus starts with in this disciple-making process. Willing hearts who are willing to, to engage him, to enter into this relationship, not only as a Savior, but to follow him in a, as Lord of our life. Lord of our family, Lord of our finances, Lord of our beliefs, Lord of our convictions, Lord of our homes, Lord of my job, all of those things, that's when this process begins. And so it begins when the disciple begins following Christ. Then he says, I will make you, I will make you. He, he says, he will make me. Christ brings the change, it's not something I do. Jesus' intentions were, were revealed right up front with these men. Hey, listen, not only if you follow me, but I'm going to make you into something. I'm going to transform you into something. I have intentions with you. You're not going to stay where you are. That's never been Jesus' intention when we engage him in a personal relationship. It's never his intention is to leave you where you are. That's the worst thing he can do is to leave you where you are today. The worst decision you can make is to stay there. See, he planned on changing them and shaping them. He said he was going to make them into something. There was a process which will turn those raw materials of, of these rough men into these incredible disciples who take the gospel and, and began the, the church of the first century. It doesn't happen without the first step of, of our willingness, and it won't happen because we want to be the product. The log could have sat there and said, I want to be a door frame. Okay, well, get yourself over to the extrusion part. It wasn't going to happen just because he wanted it to. It's not going to happen because we want to be something different. It happens when we enter that relationship, and every day we begin living in obedience to him. Asking him, show us, Lord, where do you want me to go now? What do you want me to do now? What do you want me to change about me now? See, he was going to address all those characteristics about himself. He's going to do the same with you and me. And through shaping and forming process, it's going to be done through the Holy Spirit. See, it's not done on our own. Not seeing anything we do on our own. Not something we choose to be tomorrow. That's just being moral, ethical, law-abiding, nice. There's a lot of those people dying and going to hell, to be honest. But when we submit our lives to Christ, when we began living in obedience, Jesus says, oh, this is good. See, I'm going to use them like that fire, like that, that uh, fire in that, in that press. 
man, Jesus is going to come and use the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to press you out to something he wants you to be. That is so cool. Now, aluminum plant, it took the process of fire. It took somebody to create a die or shape that, that, that it was called to be, and then it took an operator to do it. It took a lot of the process. The, the log just couldn't get off the pile and go be a door frame. You and I can't just wake up one day and say, we're going to be a disciple. Not without going through the process of being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the process continues as we're being changed by Christ through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And the last part is fishers of men. He said, listen, you guys have been fishers of fish. I love what it says in the message. You've been catching bass and perch. First time I read that was in East Texas. I thought, man, that fits. Bass and perch, but now I'm going to teach you how to fish for men. Guys, you've been catching fish all your life. Now I'm going to teach you how to catch men for the kingdom of God. You see, that was Christ's mission, catching men, catching women, lost people. Matter of fact, in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For I have come to seek and save that which was lost. That's the raw material. I need you, church. I need you, factory. See, warehouses don't make disciples. Factories make disciples. I need you, ecclesia, the called out ones that has a purpose to make disciples. I need you to help seek and save that which was lost. Because when we spend time with Jesus in relationship with him, we cannot help but care about what he cares about. And when Jesus' heart gets in us and we begin to believe the reality that people we know or either going to go to heaven or they're going to die to go to hell if they're lost. Man, that's going to change us. That's a reality. People are one of two groups. Either they're saved or they're lost. To Jesus, that's all that mattered. Are they saved or are they lost? Because I came to reach the lost. And church, that's your job. Go make disciples. Go reach the lost. Turn them into this finished product called the disciple. See, when we get to catch that reality and that begins to get in us, Jesus' heart gets in us, man, it changes the way we think about people. It changes the way we pray for them. It changes how we spend our time and our money to invest in them and invest in relationships with them. I mean, we just look at people differently. And his mission becomes our mission. See, when the aluminum... When that block of aluminum, the log of aluminum went through the extrusion process, it became to take shape, but it wasn't yet ready yet. And instead, we still had to cut it. We had to finish it off. We had to go anodize it. We had to get it ready for packaging and shipping and get it out the door before it could fully be used and be useful. There's a process uh, that God uses in us when his heart begins to get in us that helps us become useful to him. And that's when we commit our hearts to Christ's purpose. Now, let me give you a couple of cautions before we, before we wrap this up tonight. The process is never complete this side of heaven. I know some people have told me, and I've even used this, oh, a disciple is a fully developed follower of Christ. I have no idea what that means. It's so generic and so broad, I, don't, I couldn't give you details of how to paint that picture. But I'm never going to be fully developed this side of Christ, this side of heaven. But also, that process doesn't happen alone. 
You can't become a disciple of Christ on your own. It happens in relationship with other believers who are going through that same process who are at different levels of the process to help bring you along or you to help them come along. And when we end, man, we want to go back and help make more, more, more disciples. We want to pour into more people. We want to start more Bible study classes. We want to start more 242 groups. We want to start more, more, um, more grow groups. We want to start more ministries. And, and those happen when you and I get to that process at the end and say, all right, God, I'm committed to you. Now, what do you need me to do and who, is, who, who do I do it with? And so this is a relational environment that this happens in. When I started, I asked you the question, what's the product the church, the ecclesia, is responsible for producing? What do we call to produce church? This is not a golf course. Y'all scream louder than that at that stadium over there. What do we call to produce church? Thank you, sir. That man's excited about doing what he's doing. Some of you are not excited because, to be honest, this is the first time you've ever heard it. You're still processing it. Some of you... You're not sure you want to even begin this process because it means that you're going to have to give up something to become what Jesus has called you to already to be. And here's what I, here's what I want to tell you. Jesus has really, really, really hammered this home with me. Mike, if you're not living in obedience, you're living in disobedience. That disobedience is called sin, and you're choosing to live in sin. So if you're not committed to this process of becoming a disciple... Then I'm just going to tell you what God told me. Hey, you're choosing to live in sin. Deal with that, church. Here's what I want to do. I want to know what are you going to do different? Where are you at in this process? And what do you need to do different this year so that next year when we get here and I said, hey, man, how are you in your discipleship process? You go, Mike, I'm right here. Here's where I am. I was here and I moved. God's moved me here. Man, I'm growing in my knowledge, not just of God, but in my relationship with him. And he's been getting his heart of me. And, man, I want to I do some ministry stuff. Or I want to help serve somewhere. And, I, man, I, I'll get pumped for you. Man, we'll begin praying and seeing where God's leading you. What are you going to do different? Where are you at in the process? And what are you going to do differently? Close your eyes with me. Some of you are here tonight because, like I said earlier, you've, you've not ever started this relationship with the Lord. You never have. You think you have. You've come to church. You've gone to, to Sunday school all your life. You've been a part of ministries, but you never in, entered into this personal relationship with Jesus, and now he's calling you to do that. I'm just telling you here, if you're listening, today is the day of your salvation. When we stand, I want to encourage you to come down. We'll have the pastors down here. Man, they want to share with you. They want to talk with you. They want to lead you into this personal relationship. Some of you said, well, I've started that relationship, but I've never gone any further. I'm not living in this obedient relationship with Christ. It's time for me to start that process. You've been doing this now for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you're still living the same spiritual year after year, after year, after year, and you've never matured. You've never matured in that process. Today's the day that you make that difference. You make the change. You answer God's call. Pastors will be down here. They'll want to pray with you. Maybe you just need to come and pray. Bring your spouse up here. You want to pray and say, I want our home to be a house of disciples. We're going to make disciples in our home. Maybe tonight you just want to commit with the pastors and the leadership of this church that says, tonight I'm going to commit with them to make disciples, whatever that looks like, men and women who follow Jesus in obedience. Not just talk about salvation. Father, 
I have no idea where folks are tonight, but you do, God. And if, Lord, if we're, not, if we're not honest with ourselves, the only person we're fooling is us. Because you already know our hearts and the rest of us, it doesn't really matter. But God, this is your church. This is your ecclesia. And you said you would build your church. We want to be your church. We do not want to be a warehouse. But we want to be a factory of sending out men and women like this team from Southeast Asia uh, who are going to Southeast Asia who have said, we're going to follow in obedience wherever God calls us. We pray for, for men and women and girls and boys who need Jesus who will come to, to, to say, Jesus is my Savior and he's going to be my Lord. I pray for adults who need to make that commitment tonight that said, man, he's been my Savior, just my Savior far too long. He needs to be my Lord. He needs to take control of my life. I'm messing things up. I'm never going to become the disciple he wants me to be because I won't follow him. Some of us are living in disobedience tonight, God. May we come to you and confess that and make a difference, let you make a difference in our life. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.